Introduction to Advent 2021. So before the scripture reading today, we are going to reflect on the season of Advent. Advent, which means coming or visit, is observed in the church during the days in December leading up to Christmas Eve. It is a time to place ourselves in the position of Israel who were waiting for their Messiah for a hundred of years. We symbolize that waiting with the use of an Advent wreath, which is made up of five candles. Today we will light the first candle and each week another candle leading up to Christmas Eve when we will light the Christ candle in the middle of the wreath. In this season, we keep in mind both Advents of Christ, the first in Bethlehem at his birth, and the second is the waiting that we do now as a church while waiting for the second coming of Christ. The first purple candle we light today represents hope. Now please turn with me to Psalms 131 for the reading of the passage before the sermon. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Um, Let us um, pray together. Um, Yeah, Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for your blood and your body that was spilled out and broken for us. Lord, we magnify your name this morning above all other things. We exalt you. We declare that, Jesus, you are Lord over all. Um, We thank you so much for the reading of your word this morning. Thank you that your word cuts through our hearts, and it's sharp, and it's an arrow, Father, that divides bone and marrow, Lord. I pray that our hearts may be open to receive the message that you have for us this morning. I pray that you may be exalted in our minds, God, that every high and lifted thought, Lord, may be brought low, Jesus, that we may take every thought captive and bring it to your obedience, Lord, so we can receive the word that you have for us today. Lord, you are exalted over all the earth. All of this was created for you and by you, and it was all created for your glory. So take your seat, Lord Jesus, and we exalt you and we lift you high as king in this place, in our hearts, in our minds, God. I just pray that that we may just be led by your spirit, Lord, even after um, the passage of today, God, that we may reflect on it and meditate on it throughout the week, Jesus, that your name may be glorified in our midst, Lord, and that we may be able to tweak and remove and just switch our lives around for your glory, God, so that we may have more room for you in our hearts, Jesus. We just know, Lord, that you are in the midst of us, that you delight in us, your children, and that you are just full of joy, Father God. So I pray that you may receive the reward of your sacrifice in this room, Jesus, and that you may just be high and exalted, Lord, over every high and lofty thing, Lord. Let it be brought low, God, and let us humble ourselves before you in just humility, Lord, recognizing that we couldn't have done anything to earn salvation, that it's all by your grace, God, freely given, Jesus. So let us receive it this morning, God, as an act of sacrifice and worship to you, Jesus. We just thank you for all these things. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. morning. Um, 
This is the third time I've preached this semester, so if you're getting tired of me, uh, don't worry, I'm going to get a month off, uh, so you won't see me till January. Uh, and I've, been, uh, I've had the privilege to preach a couple of sermons here, including today, uh, on our series on the Psalms of Ascent that we've been working through over the past couple of weeks uh, and months. Uh, so if you've missed uh, the past couple of months here at Mercy House or you're new here, first of all, we'd like to welcome you. Welcome. Uh, but we'd also like to give you a little bit of a background into this uh, series we've been working through. So these psalms that we're reading through, these psalms of ascent, they're like a track list or an album or background music for Jewish pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for one of the three feasts that they had each year. So these were festive songs, songs for an occasion. We're now in our first Sunday of Advent. So you are officially allowed to play Christmas music. I'm sure some of you have already started doing this, or maybe you've been doing it all along. Uh, no judgment here, but uh, just like we typically reserve some, some certain songs uh, for this Christmas, seri- this Christmas season where we break them out and dust them off, uh, and, uh, and we start playing them again to go along with the season, so too would God's people break out this particular album when they were on a pilgrimage, ascending to the heights of Jerusalem. That's not to say you can't sing these psalms or read these psalms at another time, but just, and, and by the way, if you want to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful, frankly, any time want, uh, you want, uh, I'm okay with that. Just don't wear it out. I think the playlists uh, that we see here in these psalms of ascent uh, are, are like that. They're these festive psalms that, that cover actually a lot of ground. They would uh, as they sang these songs in worship, they explored a, a huge range of emotions and topics, from distress in the midst of their enemies to joy in the promises of the Lord, from joy in the meeting of the house of the Lord to the trust that God would build and uphold His house. From the depths of despair that we saw last week in Psalm 130 to the heights of the heavenly throne we saw in Psalm 123, it's not a one-note album. There's a lot going on here. And just as an aside, I think, you know, for me, like one of the things I love about Christmas songs so much is the fact that they're old, but they don't get old. We've sung them for years. We've sung them for centuries as a church. And that's something that never really gets old to us. It's, It's a great part of our heritage. And we can think in the same way about the Psalms. The Psalms, that's a songbook that's for the faithful that goes back thousands of years. It's been the hymnal of worship to the one true God since before the first Christmas. This is a precious heritage that we have. And when we read, when we pray, or yes, even sing the Psalms, which you can do that, by the way, we're worshiping with the saints across millennia. How cool is that? It's a rich, uh, so this set of psalms is a rich and full expression of worship in the lives of the faithful. And the arrangement of these psalms, I think, actually makes a kind of logical sense. It's not necessarily how they were originally written, but they've been arranged in a way that's helpful to us. For example, last week we saw Tommy speak about the brokenness grounded uh, in the psalmist's own sinfulness and the need to turn to the Lord for forgiveness and hope. But now, given that God has redeemed us from our iniquities by His grace, 
and we only have hope in, he, hope in Him, now what? How do we respond? What does it mean to live for us to live faithfully in the light of the gospel? How do we behave? How do we act? How do we not behave? How do we not act? And so Psalm 131 is a psalm of David that is going to address just this topic. And as you've seen here, it's a very short uh, uh, verse. Like, there's really like a two-point sermon here, which is like, don't be proud and be content. That's it. You can kind of leave if you really want to right now. But it's pretty simple in a lot of ways. But I, I want to share this quote from Charles Spurgeon because it popped up in a couple of commentaries I looked at. It, he, he said about the psalm, it is one of the shortest psalms to read but the longest to learn. To understand this is hard enough, to, but to live it is, is much, much harder. So we're going to spend some time in this, diving in to what, uh, this, uh, to what David has to say in this short psalm. So as I said, the first point here is, uh, is the psalmist declaring that he is not proud. We read in the first verse, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So, where am I getting this sense of pride? Well, this, this phrase, heart is not lifted up. That's the same expression as in two other places in the Old Testament uh, in Scripture that's typically translated, heart is proud. So, for example, in Ezekiel 28.2, speaking to the rulers of Tyre, Ezekiel says, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god, though you make your heart like the heart of a god. So, here we see this phrase, heart is proud, and that's the same phrase that we're seeing in the psalm, that the heart is lifted up. That's a pretty clear and obvious, flagrant instance of pride, I think we can all say, in the heart of the ruler of Tyre. So prideful, in fact, that he's viewing himself as a god or like a god. Now, I think we can all agree that that's like tier one, grade A, top shelf pride. Like that's, that is pride for sure. It's kind of like the end of the slippery slope of pride where all, you finally just think of yourself as a god, right? So that's a very clear one. But we also see uh, a, a lesser kind of pride, perhaps, uh, in a largely good king of Hezekiah. The same phrase is used to describe him in 2 Chronicles 32, 24 through 26, where we read, in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. The second mention in those verses of pride of his heart, that's the same notion as in our text where it says, heart lifted up. We get a little more detail about what's happening here for Hezekiah in 2 Kings, where we read about the same incident, and we see that envoys have come from Babylon to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah invites them in. It's kind of like if you've got a new TV and Super Bowl Sunday is coming up, 
You invite your friends over to, uh, to kind of show it off, right? He's sort of showing off his wealth and, and the splendor of everything that he's accumulated in his reign to these representatives from Babylon. And the pride of his heart, his inflated ego has lifted him up to some pretty heady heights here, to a point where he's not only glorifying himself wrongly in the gifts that God has provided for him, uh, to him in his reign, but he's also made like a potentially like catastrophic strategic blunder, right, by revealing his wealth to a foreign power who, by the way, if, if you know how the story ends, eventually is going to conquer Judah. In fact, this is the punishment for his pride, is that the wealth that he is priding himself in is going to be taken away, although not in his lifetime. So to be sure he hasn't declared himself a god, he hasn't placed himself in the seat of the Almighty like the king of Tyre, but he has certainly misplaced his trust. His heart has been lifted up pridefully. So we see uh, that a, a lifted up heart, a prideful heart in things that we have uh, or things, uh, or our own view of ourselves is what the psalmist is warning us against or saying, declaring that he is against himself. Another phrase we see here is that my eyes are not raised too high. Often, this phrase is translated as haughty eyes. We see that elsewhere in Scripture, this phrase haughty eyes in Psalm 18:27. for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Quick Google of this word haughty, which is not one I use very often, uh, says that this means arrogantly superior or disdainful. So the psalmist is declaring that he won't consider himself superior or look down on others. But I also want to uh, dig into this use of the word eyes here because I think what comes after this verse is going to give us some clue as to what the psalmist means. So what do, what do we make of the use of eyes in this verse? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, we can see that eyes signify a few different things. So, in Matthew 6.22, we read, the eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So, it's the means by which we are guided. It stands in for our perception of our surroundings, but more than that, our understanding of what is good, what is true, and what is just. It's also the means through which influences and desires, good and bad, come to affect us. So on the good side, we, uh, we have in Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. This is an expression of desire to behold, to wonder at, and cherish the word of God. But we have a more negative use in Job 31, 7 through 8, where we read, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. Here, for Job, the heart here is potentially being led into sinful desire by the eyes. There's a sense that we are looking out, perceiving, gazing forth at something that we want and that drives us to go out and try and get what we desire. Jesus' teaching on lust in Matthew 5.28 reflects this and kind of collapses the two in saying that, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So the eye is ground zero for all kinds of desire, good and bad, including pride. Putting this together, we see this in this, in this verse, the eye is lifted up. It's gazing out on what perhaps it does not have or it should not have, and it deeply desires it. In a sense, then, we can think of this not only as a pride of the things that we currently have, like Hezekiah or the king of Tyre, but also a pride that motivates us to see what we do not have and go take what we want. The pride and presumption of ambition. This is what Eugene Peterson draws out, of this, uh, out in his commentary on this psalm. He says, Our culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everyone wants to get more, to be on top. No matter what it is the top of, is admired. There's nothing recent about the temptation. It is the oldest sin in the book, the one that got Adam thrown out of the garden and Lucifer tossed out of heaven. What is fairly new about it is the general admiration and approval that it receives. Looking for the next move, making slick strategic corporate plays, charting your assault on the org chart at your place of work. These are all things that are, at the very least, like, begrudgingly permitted in most contexts in America, if not celebrated. There's whole shows about this kind of thing, TV shows. If that is a bit too corporate of an example, by the way, I think there's all sorts of ways in which this crops up in our lives. Maybe just like one-upping your neighbor with like things like Christmas lights, perhaps, right? Or constantly comparing the state of your house or your yard, right? Or maybe even more than that, being competitive and feeling competitive about your children in comparison with your friends and your neighbors. I would say, for, even for those, who aren't, uh, those of us who aren't caught up in some kind of corporate rat race, that our hearts are so often led by our eyes to see what we do not have, and that leads us to a place of, of desire and pride. Even in our walk as Christians even in the way we think about ourselves and our own status as God's people. So, the true story, I went to a Christian school growing up, and it was really, uh, there's a lot of good things I can say about it, so I'm not here to, like, bash the school I went to. I'm not trying to beat up on them. But we literally had an end-of-the-year award called Most Inspirational Christian. And I, I mean, come on, right? Like, we shouldn't have haughty eyes, Right? that lead us into prideful contemplation of our own elevated station as Christians, right? Or perceived superiority to those around us, even in our walk, or probably especially in our walk as Christians, right? And so we shouldn't have haughty eyes that lead us uh, into a place of pride. But I think the verse then takes a bit of a turn uh, that, we, that we should probably spend some time in. The, the, this, this last line is maybe a little bit more troubling, where it says, I do not occupy myself with things too high and too lofty for me. So that suggests a kind of humility we should have that goes beyond the like, clear pride of, like, hey, don't think I am a god. Like, don't do that. All right, well, that's clear. But this seems to suggest more than that, right? Clearly, it's bad to think things like that, but 
we, this is saying something more in that we shouldn't fixate on things that are beyond us. But then that brings up the question, well, what kind of things are beyond us? We could take this, I think, in several ways, but some of them are not so helpful. Others, I think, are closer to what's intended. One unhelpful way to think about this, I think, uh, is that a reason, this may be just a reason to not care too much about learning about God or learning about Scripture. You might take this, in con- this verse in conjunction with the, the verse in Isaiah 55.8 that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And suggest then that, well, we shouldn't think too much about Scripture or God. These things are too high and too lofty for us. Theology is too high and too lofty for us. All these religious people are just wasting their time thinking about these things so much. Nobody really knows. So, why bother? But the certain, this, this just isn't really the counsel of Scripture. We see in Scripture, Psalm 1, 1 through 2, which ta- and in talking about Scripture says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So not only should we not ignore the Scripture, God's law, but we should meditate on it day and night. It should be in our thoughts constantly. Furthermore, we see in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, It makes clear that we should contemplate God. We read there, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So if anything, this is pulling us in the opposite direction, right? Think about God. Think about the gospel. Think about heavenly things all the time. But there's a bit of a tension here, right? So God's ways are higher than our ways, but at the same time, we're to contemplate His Word and set on our minds on heavenly things, to behold things that angels long to look into. So I think one way of sort of resolving this tension that is perhaps helpful in, in thinking, about, uh, uh, thinking about theology in general is to Resolve it with a bit of theological humility that we see in 1 Corinthians 2. And I think this is one of the most helpful passages for understanding the balance in a Christian's life. Paul's discussing at length where wisdom comes from in the Christian life. And he says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit." For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit." interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then skipping down to verse 16, we read, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a lot going on there, but in summary, the knowledge of the deep things of God is something that we can have access to. 
We have access to the mind of Christ through the Spirit, which allows us to understand God in ways not available before. This is a response to those verses from the Old Testament here that say God is not, that perhaps can be interpreted that God is not knowable, that we are in Christ, and so we have unprecedented, unprecedented access to the throne room. Christian, this access is something you have, like, right here, by the way. You've got it on your phone, or maybe on your coffee table, or maybe in your lap right now, Brendan. You've got the Bible, and you're able to understand it by the grace of God. Just like Hezekiah's riches are not something that he should take pride in, our understanding of Scripture, the revelation of the deep things of God, that's not something that we take pride in. It's enabled and empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. Grasping it, both intellectually and in faith, to really take hold of it is only possible by the prompting of the Spirit, securing our faith and leading us to deeper wisdom. So it's not something to boast in, but to, something to be thankful for. As we search God's Word, we can pray that God will work in us, crucially in the context of a community of other saints in the local church and in the universal church as well, as we seek to interpret it. And when we hit up against things that confuse us, and that's inevitably going to happen, we can say, God, give me the grace to understand this. And even if I can't in this moment, I trust in you. There's a lot more I think I could say about that, but I think really in, in light of what we read in this, in, before this line and in verse 2, I think the psalmist has something slightly different uh, in view here when talking about things too high and too lofty for us. Really what the psalmist is getting at is what's too lofty is God's providence, what God is doing, and why He does it. So maybe you're sitting there, and you could easily see this kind of like high-handed pride we talked about where someone thinks they're a god, right? Or someone's showing off their wealth, or someone is craftily scheming their way to more power, or someone's handing out awards for being the best Christian, <laughs> and you're saying that all of those seem like pretty bad pride, and i you know, glad I don't do that, which itself may be kind of a prideful thought, but we'll set that aside for now. I think another form of pride, though, that is far more common for us, and it's sort of a distorted version of pride, is the pride that we find in anxiety. Yeah, the feeling that we can't rely on anyone else. We have to do it ourselves or else. The pressure we put on ourselves to get it done no matter what. The worry that encompasses us when we think about the things that we can't control. In some ways, David Shirley, uh, you know, as he's writing this, he's got to have in some, uh, some respect a view of this high-handed kind of pride and arrogance. I mean, he's, he's a king after all. There's a a sense that, of course, he has to combat that, but I think there's also a sense that he had a lot to worry about. He was constantly being plotted against, right? He was chased by his enemies, sleeping in caves. He had a lot to be anxious about in his life. But I think a part of that, that's what he's warning against. Our anxiety at our lack of control is in its own way a kind of pride, putting ourselves at the center. It's a selfishness. 
It maybe doesn't make us a god, but it makes us the main character, the protagonist. So I think that that's what's in view here is our tendency to fixate on what God is doing or what he will do and why is he doing it. We struggle with our lack of knowledge of what's coming next. What's going to happen tomorrow? What school am I going to get into? What job am I going to get? Am I going to get fired? What fresh new disaster or misfortune or variant is going to bulldoze my life in the next six months? Throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, we see that the need in these kind of moments where we are racked by anxiety, that we need to turn to God and trust in His providence for our future good. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. James 4.13-15 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I can't tell you what is going to happen tomorrow. I am an economist by trade. Don't ask me for stock advice, though. There are things that are too high and too lofty for me. And that's not to say that we shouldn't prepare or act prudently, but we shouldn't fixate and worry about things that are beyond our control. That's above our pay grade. But I think we also, like, we don't just struggle with the what, what is going to happen, but also the why. Why is this happening? And I would be lying to you today if I told you I could understand why all the hurt in this world happens the way it does. It is quite literally beyond me. I can't grasp it. And that's partly what this verse is telling us. I don't have the perfect words to make it all make sense for you, but ultimately, We can trust, as the proverb says, in the Lord with all our heart. We read in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Likewise, in Romans 8, 28, we read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. So whatever it is uh, that you're going through today, whatever trial or tribulation, and this is going to, this may be really, really hard to do and fathom because there's so much pain in your life. But I want you to know today that God loves you. And for those of us who are in Christ, He has a plan for your life. And it's not just about you. Uh, He's going to restore all of creation. And you get to be a part of that. And for those of you who think that you do have it all together, that you have a plan, you have the ability, you know what you want, and you know how to get it, consider just for a second, what if you don't? That's probably closer to reality. And by the grace of God, He'll make that obvious to you sooner rather than later. 
and the moment when all of your plans break down, I want you to know that if you trust in Christ, if you pursue, if you turn and pursue His glory and righteousness, if you turn from your sins and follow Jesus, you can rest assured in the perfect and perfectly executed plan of the gospel, which will prosper you and make you whole. So again here, uh, we're not to be prideful, we're not to be presumptuous, right? but how then are we to act? Well, in two words, it's as simple as be content. It's not so simple, I would hazard to guess for most of us. So we read in verse 2, for example, or as an example, uh, he gives this metaphor, which I think is a lot of fun uh, to think about, to turn over in our heads. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So one way we might be tempted to respond to the reality that we're not in control is to sink into kind of like an infantile despair and dependency. Maybe get a case of the Eeyores. You guys know Eeyore, right? From Winnie the Pooh. I can't do anything. I'm not important. Who cares if I try? God's doing it all anyway, so what's the point? This is really just like the flip side of, this, uh, of the same coin as anxiety. Rather place, than placing my ability to make things happen at the center, I'm sulking at my lack of ability to do anything that matters. So what's the point? And that's just not the way to behave either. Rather, there is a kind of balance that we see in the psalmist. And he gives, so, and he gives this example. So what's he on about this example of a weaned child? Well, for those of us who are parents, this is a familiar picture for us. When you have a newborn, especially in that like first year, you're always on call. Right? A newborn is, yes, a precious human soul uh, who we should care for and love, but it's also a biological alarm system too. Right? <laughs> basically, babies don't just cry for no reason or because they're like moody or whatever. They're their cries are basically an alarm, right? A cry for help. And it's like one of a few things. It's like, I peed, I pooped, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm tired. And that's about it. Figure that out, mom and dad. That's basically what they're saying when they cry, all right? Of course, for some babies, it's hard to turn off this alarm. So, you know, and there's some variation in experience here. But basically, their brain's job is to say to their parents, help me. My body needs something. Figure it out. Right? But as they grow and develop, their minds begin to move beyond what their immediate needs are. They begin to occupy themselves with things beyond their immediate needs, to explore and to wonder. And one of the great joys of parenting, then, is to shepherd your child's through, child through this process. Soon, the child is weaned and no longer reliant on their mother for food directly no longer constantly attached to their mother in the baby Bjorn, no longer waking up in the middle of the night every hour for food. Crucially, though, they are still utterly dependent on their mother and their father. They begin to grab for food themselves, but it's food that their parents have put on their plate. They begin to talk, but it's not without the constant interaction and teaching from their parents, and in particular, their mother whose voice has been a constant presence since the womb. They begin to walk, 
but not without a parent close behind. And as they develop, they begin to gain more of a sense of what it means to be a human, gaining function and understanding of what they are capable of. And in the midst of all this development, the constant dependence on their parents remains because without a parent or someone to watch out for them, a four-year-old or a five-year-old right, is in a lot of trouble. Right? And one of the best moments, I think, uh, as a parent is one where you're sitting in the same room as your kid and you're attentive to the, their presence, but you're not like hovering over them, worried that they're going to launch themselves off a sofa or something, right? And you're able to sit there, and they come up to you, and they ask to just sit with you, just to sit. And they snuggle up close to you, and they look up to you, and they say, I love you. That's not what it's always like, uh, but when this happens, they look at you with those eyes that express their love, but also a trust, this childlike confidence that they may not know much. They may not know everything, but their, their mom knows their mom knows what to do. They're content in their lack of knowledge and understanding because they have complete trust and confidence in their parents. And so the key point of these verses then is for those of us who trust in Christ, you are not a baby, but you are a child. We should not constantly be tossed to and fro by the needs of the moment. But we're not independent and self-sufficient. We're not clinging and latched, but we are happy to just sit with the one on whom we depend. We have cried out already in our infant desperation for someone to help. We've already cried out in the midst of our sin. As Tommy said last week when we were lost at sea and Christ has saved us. But we're not done in our dependency. You're capable of reason and agency as a human, but it pales infinitely in comparison to the reason of the one who watches over us and enables our reason. I think it's one of the harsh realities of growing up in some ways that parents fail to live up to this vision that I was describing earlier uh, that children have. So teenagers eventually start to realize that maybe mom and dad don't know everything, right? And for some of us, like, that vision of a parent never existed in the first place, right? For all of us, no matter what our parents were like or our situation at home looked like, we eventually become aware that our parents are fallen, sinful, imperfect, just as we are. And that makes it hard. Uh, knowing what we know, how can we then have that childlike trust with anyone, right? But David is inviting us. We can have such trust with our Heavenly Father. Not only is He perfect in His wisdom, without reproach in His decisions, and just in everything He does, but He cares and loves you in ways that surpass even the best of parents. He loves you so much that He sent Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who was the full image of God, yet humbled Himself to live as a human and die a death on the cross that we might be saved. So you can trust Him, not just because we have some intellectual knowledge of His character, but because He displayed the fullness of His love and His grace and His mercy 
by paying the highest of prices. And we therefore have reason to hope. In verse 3, we read, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. David is, of course, speaking to Israel, the nation of Israel, reminding them of the promises God has made and that he's a faithful father that they can have confidence in and rest in. But the same application can be made for us as the church, the new Israel. O church, hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The promises that have been extended to all nations through the work of Christ Jesus are a reality for you now. You can rest in them. Philippians 3, 4 through 7 provides the New Testament expansion of what this text is communicating. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will surpass that which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The contentment and peace of God is ours when we place our trust in the Heavenly Father who loves His children. In our childlike dependence, we can rest content with a peace we don't understand. As we set aside what is too high and too lofty for us, For us to grasp, a peace that we can't grasp either is promised to us. It's not a peace that comes from having all our ducks in a row. It's a peace that comes from the Spirit of God Himself who we can look to in trust and contentment. We can also trust that this is not just a present reality, but a hope that is grounded in an eternal truth, that God will restore all things, and we will worship and bask in His presence forevermore. So, if you're not a Christian, we want this promise to be yours too. We want you to partake in this promise and hope that we have. You can cry out today. That's an admission of weakness, I have to tell you. It's an admission of dependency. And like an infant, you might not fully grasp at this moment what is wrong, but you know who can help. If that describes you and you want to seek and explore, what what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? We ask that you find someone in the back after the sermon. Uh, They'll have lanyards and I'll be in the back and you can ask them. If you place your trust in Him, you'll begin to grow in your faith and your understanding. And for us Christians, that describes us growing and developing, but still children, dependent and trusting I would encourage you, Christian, today, as you trust in Christ, be content. It's a hard thing to tell somebody to do, right? This is one of the shortest psalms to read, but the longest to learn, right? I think the best I can say is that this begins with some reflection. Sometimes it's easiest to do this when you have gotten away from the standard patterns of your life. I know it's hard for me to find true contentment. Uh, Those moments are few and far between. But we need to try and cultivate this in our lives, to practice it on a daily basis. The image here is a child just sitting, soaking in the presence of their mother, trusting in her benevolence and wisdom, not asking or requesting, but reveling. Our parent, our father, 
is here today. Today, Mercy House, God is here among us. We need to soak this in. The temptation is to think to what's next. What do I need to get done today? When's the game on? Is this sermon over yet? It's like three verses. How do we take this long to get through three verses? But let's realize here that we're in the presence of God. We can revel in that. Your heavenly Father in spirit and truth is among us. Let's revel in that. So nowhere is this more evident in this service than, uh, to us than at the Lord's Supper when we partake of the elements together that represent the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. Sorry, lost my place. The cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we partake of this together here in a moment after prayer, if you're a Christian, take some time. Go to God in prayer. Bring your requests. Give thanks. But also just reflect Revel in the presence of God as a child with their mother. Be content. If it's not possible for you to be content, ask a brother or sister for prayer. Whatever is bothering you or you can't move past into a place of contented trust, bring that to someone in the back who can pray for you or reach out to an elder or another member or someone you trust that, you can, that can help bear this burden. For all of us, uh, today, I'm going to pray here, and at a certain point, I'm going to pray this psalm. As I pray, pray along with me silently. Uh, We don't pray this prayer as if it's something that's a reality for us, something we've achieved, but it's a recognition that uh, of something that Christ is doing in us, that we are being made holy so that one day it will be a reality for us. So, let's pray. Oh, God, You are perfectly wise and just. We trust in you today, even though we confess we're not always so trusting and content. Help us to be content in the knowledge that your ways are pure and your heart is to save us sinners. Thank you, O God, for your mercy on us. Help us to grow in our faithfulness that we might pray with the psalmist, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. So if you come today and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. During